The armed forces have all been pursuing better technology for directed energy, laser beams, for weapons of the future. Now, lasers have been around for decades, but making them operational on ships, ground vehicles, or aircraft, that's another matter. In the second of three interviews from the Army's Space and Missile Defense Command in Huntsville, Alabama, I caught up with the acting director of the command's technical center, Mike Krauss. The center is where much of the directed energy work takes place. Krauss said research focuses on several technology areas, such as direct diode lasers, and a lot of effort has to do with how can we make things smaller but yet still get the energy we need uh, to uh, be, have an effect on a target. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are the current grand challenges in directed energy, since directed energy itself has been around a while? The current challenges, all right, so at the end of the day, you're trying to get as much energy in a small, smaller spot as possible to have an effect on your target. So the challenge is, how can we generate that energy and that tight of a beam to have that effect on a target? Because it's not just the part of the system that's generating the laser. It's the beam control and it's the beam director to get you on the target and then to have a, be- to have a beam that has the quality to have the effect that you want. And so you've got laser generation, you've got beam control, and then you've got beam direction. Those are the three things that we're trying to get after. And trying to get those in a form factor, we're trying to get our size, weight, and power to where it's practical for the soldier to use Platforms can be smaller, power requirements are smaller, and that way you're, you're more options to employ these weapons, either airborne, seaborne, or on the ground. Yeah, so then in many ways the challenges are not the laser technology or laser science itself, but the system behind that's generating the energy. Yes, absolutely. So we can, you know, we get, we can we can figure out better ways, and we're working on better ways to generate that laser beam. But then you got to control it, and then you got to direct it, and then you got to do it in in such a way that it's practical to use. Right, because if you take just to make a you know an absurd example, these pocket pen lasers that people use in PowerPoint, what you need is that that can kill somebody. Y- yes. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're, not, we, we're not quite to the lightsaber <laughs> uh, age yet, but uh, yeah, that's, that's generally what we're trying to get at. All right. And what are some of the platforms emerging that you're looking at? Because the Army would, I imagine, have them ground-based, maybe air-based, and each one would have different requirements. Yeah, absolutely. So the Army is fielding right now, and that's being done by the uh, Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technologies Office, and that's the Directed Energy Mobile Short-Range Air Defense Vehicle. So that's that's a solid-state laser on a striker vehicle. In parallel with that, we're looking on more high-powered applications for things like cruise missile defense. And so you'll see those be on more fixed platforms, maybe some sort of palletized solution that you can use in fixed sites. Right. So is the challenge batteries? So the challenge is batteries, right? Power, right? And then you got to cool these things, right? Because you, you want to keep your electronics cool. You want to keep your lasers cool. So you have the uh, uh, HVAC, basically. Uh, you've got your power requirements. And then none of it needs to weigh a whole lot because uh, the more weight you put on a vehicle, the more fuel it uses, and then the more logistics train you have to have. You know, there's as much research and development going into that aspect of it is, as there is the beam control and how you generate the laser. Sure. So the beam control, then, that would be an electronics and aiming type of… Uh... Yeah. So those are your, your beam controls, your optics. Your beam direction will be your, you know, how do you, how do you get that thing pointed in the right direction? Right. So there's an electronics, almost a, maybe an AI component to make 
making these things operate, do you think? Uh, well, I think the AI component will come in with, with later on down the road when you have a directed energy solution in your formation. So now you have an incoming threat. Do you engage it with a directed energy effector, some other kinetic effector? How, how do you do that? So then the AI will come in with how do you employ different types of capabilities that you have at your fingertips. And is duty cycle one of the challenges? Because you want to be able to fire it repeatedly like you can yeah. a regular kinetic type yeah, of... Yeah, we, we call that magazine depth. That's another thing where power comes in, right? So you want to have enough power available so you don't have to sit there and recharge. You want to, you want to be able to have as many engagements as possible for as long a period of time as possible. So, so there's that R&D area in the power. All right, so how does there. all this translate into the technical center? Mary, working on the, the laser generation, beam control, and beam direction. There, there are other parts, other research centers out there there in the Army and, and other services that are working on the power issue. We're working on some of the basic and applied research uh, for laser generation beam control, but then we have just uh, uh, completed the construction of a directed energy systems integration lab. So what that'll look like is once once those technologies are ready to, to for experiment, we would move into the systems integration lab. That way we can we can test at the uh, component level, subsystem level, and at the system level at the directed energy cell or systems integration lab. But then also, once these are, are put on a platform, then we can bring the platform in and do systems of systems checking. So now we're looking at not only just checking out the laser, the directed energy system, now we're seeing how well it integrates with integrated battle command systems, the tracking systems. And so we can do all of that in that systems integration lab, do hundreds and hundreds of runs, reduce the risk of, of anything going wrong, you know, do some more experimentation prior to going out and doing expensive range testing. Right, because each level of integration that you add tends to turn up issues you didn't discover until you did the integration. Exactly, and you don't want to wait till you get out to the range to find, out, find those things out. Because then you're in a, you're in a, you're in a, an environment where it's not easy to correct those integration issues, or you may not have sure. the equipment available. So we can we can do as much of that risk reduction in the sills prior to doing the range. And just in general, is beam control getting back to that detail? Mm-hmm. Is that mechanical or is it electronic? Yes. <laughs> so there, there's there's some mechanical element to it. It's not like a, a searchlight. No, no. There's adaptive optics and stuff that you can actually you know use an electrical signal to 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 adapt your optics to to where you know you want. It to, want it to be. The Technical Center also has uh, the Army Senior Research Scientist for Directed Energy as part of our capability set, Dr. Nishita Kosbeck, and uh, he's a worldwide expert on beam control and um, sure. laser generation, yeah. And is there any corresponding commercial or industrial requirement that matches at all what the Army is seeking for directed energy? That is to say, is there a supplier base that may have great ideas, but just never thought of contracting with the Army for, say, a prototype? Or are the requirements just way beyond anything industry yeah, might need? Yeah, I, 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 I have not heard of any you know, industrial applications that would apply because our requirements are a bit different. In an industrial setting, for example, you know, uh, manufacturing, you know, you'll be in a, a manufacturing facility where a lot of the things that we have to deal with aren't present. For example, atmospheric propagation, atmospheric effects mm-hmm. uh, matter when you're working with directed energy. You wouldn't see that in an industrial... Uh, right, because you could be looking at something you'd be, two yeah, miles away. Or, right, or, or, or further, exactly. Right, so it's not analogous to, say, jet engine development, where pretty much the military adapts what's going on commercially to military platforms. 
right? This is a, this would be a, a different application. The requirements are much greater than what they would need in the industrial setting. Absolutely. So, do you find that from academia, you mentioned there are some academic relationships? Mm-hmm people that are interested in directed energy as a career, then it's a small subset that are available for military applications? Yeah, I would say that's probably true. One of the, one of the advantages that we have in the technical center is we have, a, uh, we have a, what we call our, our talent incubator. So we have a, a concept and analysis division, and that's where we bring in that young talent that have those interests and passions and things like directed energy, space. So what we'll do is we will uh, use what's called the DOD Smart Portal, where students can apply for uh, – it, it's very competitive. They'll, they'll, they'll apply for it, and if selected, I think thousands of uh, students apply, a couple hundred get selected you know, across the whole DOD, and then they'll get some tuition assistance and um, a stipend. And, and an opportunity to work for us when they're complete. So that is where we find out who's passionate about those things. And so we'll, we'll grow them in that concept analysis lab, grow them in labs uh, with our, our academic partners, and then they'll transition to our uh, directed energy directorate and, and start doing uh, the real fun stuff. They just have to be passionate enough to be able to go to a workplace where you leave your cell phone in a little locker. Yeah, the day. yeah, that, that's right. That, that, that doesn't seem to be an issue. But uh, And uh, I haven't seen any foosball <laughs> tables around here or anything. Yeah, we, we keep those hidden. <laughs> Mike Krauss, acting director of the Technical Center at the Army Space and Missile Defense Command. Tomorrow, a talk with the civilian personnel development manager who helped make the command the best place to work among Army components. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's 
call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, 
you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. 
they are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield. And this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.